The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure Season 2, Frankenstein. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your prince of pretension, your count of condescension, and literary mansplainer-in-chief, Michael Ian Black, coming at you with another exciting episode. Um, Last time we spoke, it was election day eve. I was in a bit of a Twitter, and I was also on Twitter. And the anxiety that I was feeling was no doubt being felt all across this fair nation and indeed the world as we awaited Election Day 2020. Well, now a week has passed. The results have become clear, even if they are being contested uh, somewhat, it seems a bit half-heartedly, by the current commander-in-chief, and the sense of relief across this great nation, and indeed across the world, is palpable. It is a good week, uh, at least where I am. Where you are, maybe things have changed, but from where I sit right now, things are pretty good. I am anticipating a bit of a topsy-turvy ride for the next couple of months, before our new president is inaugurated. But for now, things seem to be pretty good. As I mentioned, I was a poll worker on election day. And then that night, I worked the polls uh, to make a little extra money, as I sometimes do. Wednesday nights, I dance um, at a local um, strip club. Um, And it was a... How was it as an experience... Uh, in a word, pretty boring. In a word, yawn. It was 14 hours of sitting there, crossing off names 
as people came in. I was hoping to be a sticker peeler, but I was a name crosser. So people would come in, they would check in, and, and, and then they would come over to me and they'd be like, this is who I am. Here's my ID. In my state, we require ID. Uh, and then I would draw a, a line with a pencil and a ruler right through their stupid little name and hand them a, a piece of paper, which was their ticket to go over to the ballot clerk and get themselves a ballot, and then they would fill out the ballot and vote. All in all, a pretty sound system, I thought. Could you conceivably have uh, faked a little ticket, you know, a little paper ticket to get yourself a ballot? I suppose so. You would have had to have known what color we were using and the kind of paper we were using, but conceivably you could have done that. I don't think there were any cases of voter fraud that I saw, and I think it would have been difficult to do any kind of uh, uh, voter fraud in any meaningful way, which was nice. It was nice to get a peek inside the electoral system and understand exactly how votes are cast in a boring way. That's how they're cast. Boring. When I cast a, a, a ballot, I was on the other end of it, obviously. I would go, they would cross off my name, they would hand me a piece of paper, I would go get the thing. But when you're doing it for hour after hour, and you're the giver of little slips of paper and the and the crosser off of names, it gives you a different perspective on it. And it was kind of nice. I mean, yes, it was boring. And I had to be there at 5.30 in the morning. And by 6.30 in the morning, I was like, when is this going to end? Because it felt already at that point interminable. But people were in good spirits by and large. I didn't see anybody uh, upset. Everybody was masked. I think I saw one unmasked person throughout the day. I don't know what the state law is in Connecticut, but I don't think anybody asked that person to leave. Uh, nobody was chanting uh, MAGA. Nobody was chanting anything else. It was all very orderly. The longest lines of the morning, by the way, were before the thing even opened. At 5 o'clock in the morning, people were already lined up for a 6 a.m. start. And then there was an initial, an initial rush of about, oh, I guess about an hour till about 7 or 7.30, and then things died down. And then it was slow but steady throughout the day. In my little town here in the wilds of Connecticut, we had over an 80% turnout. Seems to have been a record. They fed us, I had half a chocolate donut, I had an egg sandwich, and then I skipped lunch because I knew Martha was going to be making dinner, and ooh, I wanted that din-din. So I waited. Um, but, you know, did I feel like I did my civic duty? Absolutely. Would I do it again? Eh. Eh. You know, it's a lot of work. And I am a lazy person by nature. I am not used to working 14 hours in a day. I'm not even used to being awake for 14 hours in a row. So I don't know that I would do it again. I might. And then as the results, you know, emerged over the coming days, it turned into a celebratory mood. And then Joe Biden and Kamala Harris both thanked the poll workers in their speeches. And I felt like, oh, they're talking to me. I really am a hero of this democracy. And that takes us to the hero of our novel, Frankenstein, by one Mary Shelley. When last we met Victor Frankenstein, young Victor Frankenstein, he was just starting school uh, at Ingolstadt, and he had met his first professor who had basically 
said to him, you fool, how have you been studying these old people whose uh, ideas are musty and have been exploded with age? And Frankenstein, even though he agreed with the professor, took umbrage at that. He was like, fuck you, teach. You know, he's kind of being the sweat hog here. Fuck you, Mr. Carter. I'll, I'll read what I want, Mr. Carter. And uh, Mr. Carter's like, Barbarino, you're never going to get anywhere. And Barbarino's like, fuck you, I'm John Travolta. I'm going to be a big star. I'm going to get a hair transplant and be closeted. And uh, Mr. Carter's like, that's fine, but just please pay attention in class. So Frankenstein is a little bit on his first day already. He's uh, uh, growing a little bit jaded. You know, the last sentence that I read, read is, I was required to exchange chimeras of boundless grandeur for realities of little worth. And that was his complaint earlier when he was studying the uh, uh, the sciences. He was saying, well, what good is it to like learn the taxonomy of a leaf, right? Which is what they're studying, you know, drips and drabs here in the enlightenment when I can solve disease. And so that's why he turned to the old quote unquote masters, even though the old quote unquote masters didn't know what the hell they were talking about. They were just spewing stuff, but it was such a luring pablum, right? It was pablum whose aroma was so sweet that he was like, let me sup of this pablum. And then he put it aside, and now it seems like he's coming back to it. So he says, why, why am I going to school to learn but a little when I could learn but a lot? Such were my reflections during the first two or three days of my residence at Ingolstadt, which were chiefly spent in becoming acquainted with the localities and the principal residence in my new abode. But as the ensuing week commenced, I thought of the information which M. Krempe, that's the professor, Mr. Kata, had given me concerning the lectures. And although I could not consent to go and hear that little conceited fellow <laughs> deliver sentences out of a pulpit, I, ref I recollected what he had said of Mr. Waldman, whom I had never seen as he had hitherto been out of town. So already he's not even going to go to like his freshman orientation lectures, you know, where they're basically like, hey, this is science and this is what you have to learn. And here's some introductory lectures. He's not even going to go to that. He's like, fuck that guy. Hey, fuck you, Mr. Gata. Partly from curiosity and partly from idleness. How about the fact that you're a student? I went into the lecturing room, which M. Waldman entered shortly after. This professor was very unlike his colleague. He appeared about 50 years of age, but with an aspect expressive of the greatest benevolence. A few gray hairs covered his temples, but those at the back of his head were nearly black. His person was short, but remarkably erect, and his voice the sweetest I had ever heard. And then there's a footnote, curiously. Why should there be a footnote after such an innocuous sentence? I guess we will find out. The description shows a marked... I'm on the footnote here. The description shows a marked resemblance to the physical appearance of William Godwin, at the time, who was dubbed the professor by his friend Charles Lamb. And you'll recall that, wasn't this dedicated to William Godwin? Yes, to William Godwin, author of Political Justice, Caleb Williams, etc. These volumes are respectfully inscribed. So William Godwin is making an appearance 
here in the form of M. Waldman. Um, and again, we're seeing how physical manifestation seems to be a, a metaphor for character in all of this. He began his lecture by a recapitulation of the history of chemistry and the various improvements made by different men of learning, pronouncing with fervor the names of the most distinguished discoverers. He then took a cursory view of the present state of the science and explained many of its elementary terms. After having made a few preparatory experiments, he concluded with a panegyric upon modern chemistry, the terms of which I shall never forget. And if you think, uh, listener, that, oh, Michael, you don't know what the word panegyric means, um, you would be correct. So let me go to the research machine and see what panegyric means. P-A-N-E-G-Y-R-I-C. Uh, just waiting for the research machine to warm up. I have to, you know, I have to crank it. It is steam operated. And there I have fully cranked it. Uh, it is a public speech or published text in praise of someone or something. Panegyric. Panegyric, not panegyric. Panegyric. Um... Panegyric. Okay, so he concluded with a panegyric upon modern chemistry, the terms of which I shall never forget. And now he's quoting M. Waldman, and I have to somehow create the sweetest voice that anyone has ever heard. I don't think I'm going to be capable of doing that, but let me begin. The ancient teachers of... I mean, I'm, that was a joke. That's obviously not the way a sweet voice would sound. I don't know what the sweetest voice would be, so I'll just read it. The ancient teachers of this science, said he, promised impossibilities and performed nothing. The modern masters promise very little. They know that metals cannot be transmuted and that the elixir of life is a chimera. But these philosophers, whose hands seem only made to dabble in dirt— and their eyes to pore over the microscope or crucible have indeed performed miracles. They penetrate into the recesses of nature and show how she works in her hiding places. They ascend into the heavens. They have discovered how the blood circulates and the nature of the air we breathe. They have acquired new and almost unlimited powers. They can command the thunders of heaven, mimic the earthquake, and even mock the invisible world with its own shadows. Now, I don't know quite what that means, how you mock the invisible world with its own shadows, but let us stipulate that he's being somewhat poetic, but that, in, in fact, you know, he's singing the praises of what we know of as modern science, right? It's like, yeah, it's not as exciting as spinning straw into gold. Okay, we'll admit that. But on a deeper level, we're understanding the way things work. We're understanding the fundamental nature of our reality. And isn't that exciting? Victor Frankenstein seems to think so. Such were the professor's words. Rather, let me say, such the words of the fate announced to destroy me. As he went on, I felt as if my soul were grappling with a palpable enemy. One by one, 
the various keys were touched which formed the mechanism of my being. Chord after chord was sounded, and soon my mind was filled with one thought, one conception, one purpose. So much has been done, exclaimed the soul of Frankenstein. More, far more, will I achieve. Treading in the steps already marked, I will pioneer a new way, explore unknown powers, and unfold to the world the deepest mysteries of creation. A little full of ourselves, aren't we, Mr. Frankenstein? A little full of ourselves. Heading off to Ingerstalt and already trying to discover the mysteries of creation. Why are you so full of yourself, young Frankenstein, young master? Who do you think you are? Hey, I'm Victor Frankenstein. I'm going to star in Pulp Fiction. And well, you might, sir, but you're going to have a lot of flops along the way. I closed not my eyes that night. I mean, he's 18 years old, 17 years old, right? He shows up at college. One guy pisses him off. The other guy says something he likes. But they're both pointing him in the same direction. They're both pointing him in the direction of that he already was, wants to go, right? He wants to be a scientific revolutionary. He wants to, you know, harness lightning or whatever the fuck he wants to do. You know, not like, not dissimilar from our narrator, who of course has utterly disappeared from the story, Walton, who has his own dreams. And Frankenstein warned him. Frankenstein said, look, I'm going to tell you my story so that you don't go down the same path because it destroyed me. Um, But, you know, is Walton going to listen? That's the thing. Probably not. I mean, when you think about it, really, when somebody's mind is made up, I mean, truly made up, there's very little that anybody can say to them that will sway them. We've seen that in our politics over the last four years, and I'm as guilty of it as anybody else. My mind was certainly made up about this president, and nothing he said or did was going to change my mind, and in fact, Uh, Everything he said or did only reinforced my negative opinion of him. My mind was set when I was nine years old, and young Michael decided I'm going to be an actor. Now, why would young Michael say that? And why would older Michael follow the dictates of somebody who did not yet know how to tie his shoes? It is unfathomable, and yet my mind was made up in that way, and perhaps in others as we have seen in previous episodes, I am not unlike Victor Frankenstein. I, too, have a dark and brooding nature. I, too, have sought knowledge for its own sake. I, too, have been a little bit too big for my britches at times. Did it destroy me? No. But sometimes it gave me a tummy ache. Okay, with that thought, why don't we take a little break? CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. 
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we're back. I closed not my eyes that night. My internal being was in a state of insurrection and turmoil. I felt that order would thence arise, but I had no power to produce it. By degrees, after the morning's dawn, sleep came. I awoke, and my yesternight's thoughts were as a dream. There only remained a resolution to return to my ancient studies and to devote myself to a science for which I believed myself to possess a natural talent. On the same day, I paid M. Waldman a visit. His manners in private were even more mild and attractive than in public, for there was a certain dignity in his mien during his lecture, which in his own house was replaced by the greatest affability and kindness. I gave him pretty nearly the same account of my former pursuits as I had given to his fellow professor. He heard with attention the little narration concerning my studies and smiled at the names of Cornelius Agrippa and Paracelsus, but without the contempt that M. Krempe had exhibited. He said that and this is quoting, these were men to whose indefatigable zeal modern philosophers were indebted for most of the foundations of their knowledge. They had left to us as an easier task to give new names and arrange in connected classifications the facts which they, in a great degree, had been the instruments of bringing to light. The labors of men of genius, however erroneously directed, scarcely ever fail in ultimately turning to the solid advantage of mankind. I listened to his statement, which was delivered without any presumption or affectation, and then added that his lecture had removed any prejudices against modern chemists. I expressed myself in modern terms, with the modesty and deference due from a youth to his instructor, without letting escape inexperience, and this is parenthetical, inexperience in life would have made me ashamed, any of the enthusiasm which stimulated my intended labors. I requested his advice concerning the books I ought to procure. I am happy, said M. Waldman, to have gained a disciple, and if your application equals your ability, I have no doubt of your success. 
Chemistry is that branch of natural philosophy in which the greatest improvements have been and may be made. It is on that account that I have made it my peculiar study. But at the same time, I have not neglected the other branches of science. A man would make but a very sorry chemist if he attended to that department of human knowledge alone. If your wish is to become really a man of science, and not merely a petty experimentalist, I should advise you to apply to every branch of natural philosophy, including mathematics. He then took me into his laboratory and explained to me the use of his various machines, instructing me as to what I ought to procure, and promising me the use of his own when I should have advanced far enough in the science not to derange their mechanism. He also gave me the list of books which I had requested, and I took my leave. Thus ended a day memorable to me. It decided my future destiny. End of chapter three. Well, well, Mr. Frankenstein, you are on your way, and we are delighted that it is so. It has only taken us 5,000 pages for it to happen. An interesting little thing here, though, and maybe this is still the case uh, for undergraduates, I don't know, because as you know, I'm a college dropout, and even when I was attending college, was studying acting. So what the hell do I know? But it seems to me that the sciences have changed somewhat in the past 250 years, in so much as when you go to university now and you say, I want to study chemistry, they, stu- they say, great, well, you should study chemistry and not you should study chemistry and every other science. I think because the sciences have become so, what's the word I'm looking for, segregated in probably a bad way that um, if you study chemistry, you're likely not to also study biology and physics and mathematics and all the rest of it. You will have a cursory knowledge of those fields, I suppose, but you won't have the kind of in-depth knowledge that I think uh, the professor, Professor Waldman, is encouraging young Victor Frankenstein to pursue. I mean, because because chemistry itself, I'm sure, has become so specialized. There's all kinds of different chemistries, and I would list them, but I can't think of any of them. There's uh, chemistry, and then there's special chemistry, and then there's dark chemistry, and there's magic chemistry. There's all kinds of chemistries. I really don't know what any of them are called, but I'm sure that just like in every other science, the chemistry has been broken down into so many subfields that nobody can keep track of them all. And in fact, to, to master one is not to master them all. You know, science is just like, it's so vast now. You know, we know so much, and yet there's still so much more to know. It's exciting. You know, the Enlightenment, 250 years ago, they were just kind of figuring this stuff out. They were just, you know, they were just turning their attention attention away from the Agrippas of the world and saying, yeah, we can't, we, we have to, like, just figure out what everything is before we can start figuring out what to do with it. And so that was a big deal, figuring out what the air is made of, right? That's a big deal. Like, how would you even start to do that? You know, they did it back then. I would have no idea how to start doing that now. Like, we kind of poo-poo, I think, in our modern world, what people were doing in the past. But the fact of the matter is, like, I couldn't do any of it today. I don't know how anything works. I don't know how my television works. I don't know how my telephone works. I I couldn't tell you how to design a calendar. I don't know anything. We just sort of accept that the collective knowledge of humanity has, 
increased to such a point where I don't need to know how to do anything, which is a very good thing indeed. Like it was hard enough. Like here's the thing about poll working. You know what the most challenging part was? Like the crossing off the names was actually fairly satisfying. Like there was something aesthetically satisfying about taking a ruler and a mechanical pencil and just drawing a little line through a name. Oh, how satisfying that was. And then as the book of voters was gradually filling up throughout the day, it was just, there, there was something very, very uh, calming about it and pleasant. There, the, the, the books were arranged by address. So there were different poll workers, each of whom had a different section of town. And my section of town, you would see as families would come in and their names would fill in the spaces on that particular street. But then some streets wouldn't have nearly any people. And then throughout the day, those streets would fill up too. And it, it just it just made my heart sing to draw lines through the names. A clerical task at best, but there was some, some aesthetic uh, value in it. Now, at the end of the night, when the polls closed, they said, well, now you have to count up all the people who voted. You have to count who voted in, in person and who voted absentee and tally them and compare that to the total number of people uh, and who didn't vote, right? You had to tally that up and then compare that to the, to the total number of people in your book, meaning the, in the section of town where you were. And I tell you, I panicked because the thought of counting one by one induced a panic in me that I have not often experienced. Like, what if I screw this up? So I would just go page after page right? And you would write down each page how many voters there were. But I was counting and recounting and recounting. And you'd be amazed how many different counts you get by counting one by one on the same page. Many different counts. Like what an idiot I am that I cannot count one by one and get the same number every time. Like, how stupid do you have to be to be an adult man who cannot count by ones? That was me. Like, there would be there would be pages where I'd be like, all right, so 27 people voted in person on this page and 39 voted absentee. And you could tell the absentees because they were crossed out in a red line and the in-person were crossed out by me in the mechanical pencil. And then I would check the numbers again and they would be different. So I had to devise different systems for counting. So I would count from uh, upper, upper left down that column to bottom right, the second column, and then to recheck, I would go from bottom right to upper left. Um, and what would happen is the eye would play tricks on me. Like sometimes it would just skip over a name for reasons that I couldn't quite identify. It took me a very long time to count one by one. Then I had to add up my tallies and make sure they coincided with the numbers that it should be. And then after a while and a lot of stress, I completed my task and turned in my book. At the end, I just started making numbers up, you know, just to get it to, just to get it to jive. I was just like, this isn't right. I'm just going to have to make numbers up, you know. I think they checked the books against the tallies in the scanner as well. So the scanner, the optical scanner that they have where you cast your vote, that will record how many people voted in person uh, and it will tabulate those numbers. And then those numbers should 
agree with the numbers of in-person voters that the uh, poll workers handed in, which should then also agree with the number of absentee voters, which I'm sure they have counted elsewhere. And that should also agree with the total number of voters in the district. So it's all very organized. You know, they know what they're doing. Um, They did a good job. And, you know, I got the result I wanted after I voted several times. So look, all in all, it's a good week here in America. Young Victor Frankenstein has discovered his destiny. America is still pursuing her own of course. We know how Frankenstein's is going to end in ruin and damnation. We don't yet know how our own experiment in democracy will end, but things are looking a little bit better this week than they did last week when I recorded. So I'll end there. Chapter three has concluded. We are at Ingestadt. We are uh, set on Frankenstein's destiny, which he keeps telling us he has found, by the way. I feel like this is the fourth, fifth, or sixth time he has told us he's found his destiny. Like, okay, we get it. You found your destiny. Like, let's just move it along. But, you know, in fits and starts, we are making progress here in Frankenstein and here in America. So I will end... And say, tune in next time for another patriotic episode of Obscure. Until then, I wish you adieu. Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein is produced by Robin Lynn, Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and myself. It is generally recorded in the wilds of Connecticut with original music by Craig Wedren. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to support it, please go to patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. There you will find every single episode of Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein. These episodes are released weeks before they are released to the general public in a addition, you can also find writings, musings, erotica, and bonus episodes. Bonus episodes which sometimes involve Frankenstein and sometimes involve things entirely different, often with guest stars. It's patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. Very reasonably priced too, I might add. <laughs>